It smells like an arcade in here. Oh, it was sort of cool, kind of like 1983 arcade. Because it was just, it's just recently shaken off the uh, new car vibe, and now it's morphing into something else. There's vaguely like an electronic kind of smell, like wires and circuit cheap boards. Wire. <laughs> cheap, cheap wires and cheap circuit boards. I was going to say, <laughs> my brain, when you said arcade, I was just thinking tacky seaside town, oh. stale beer, maybe. No, no. Yeah. Sort of, I, I didn't think that word translated quite properly. <laughs> Hey, this is DJ Shadow, and you're checking out Q Presents The Making Of. Well, the upshot of you being stuck in traffic is that I've completely destroyed the intro I wrote. Oh, right. In a good way. In a good way. Okay, so I'm going to read this little bit out first, and then we're going to have a chat. Hello, listener, and welcome to the latest instalment of Q Presents The Making Of, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of the great music makers of our time. My name is Niall Doherty, and our guest this week is Josh Davis, better known as DJ Shadow, DJ Shadow is one of the most influential artists of his generation, a Californian who turned his insatiable appetite for crate digging into an inventive new strand of sample-heavy music. His sixth album, Our Pathetic Age, is released in November, and it's one of his most ambitious yet, an epic double album. He joins us here today in our Camden studio. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you. So you've been out there today talking about the new record. Has it helped you understand it in any way? Um... Yeah, I'm starting to get the talking points down, I guess. Um, I mean, yeah, it's when you're working on an album, occasionally you start thinking to yourself, at some point I'm going to be able to talk about this. But when you're in it, it just doesn't seem like that's ever actually attainable because anything can go wrong. And, and you know, it's kind of, I'm still just holding my breath until it comes out, actually. Right. So it's not completed in your head, even though it is completed. Well, it's completed, but, you know, again, I just sort of feel like until it's actually out and a few thousand people have their hands on it, it could just be wiped out of history. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll just be happier when it's out, because then no matter what happens, nobody can yank it back. It's out. Yeah, so I've had it for a few days. Sounds excellent. Cool. Um, one of the guest vocalists on it is Interpol's Paul Banks. Right. Uh, who we had on the show a few months ago. Cool. So I messaged Paul over the weekend and uh, this is and told him you were coming on the pod and this is what he came back with uh, <laughs> okay, about working go. with you. He said the language that he used to describe what he was looking for was very impressive. Like an excellent director with lots of experience conveying loads with very little words. Mm. Does that ring true to you? Well, hopefully, because I mean, I've been at this for a long time now, so... I would hope that by now I know a little bit more about the psychology of working with other artists, especially established artists like Paul. And I sort of feel, I, I guess I felt when I was kind of going into it that, right, I mean, he's clearly um, open to, you know, this process, which is a bit different from his normal process. I'm sure he's been listening and, you know, uh, thinking about music for a long time and so I didn't really feel the need to maybe hold his hand quite as much as you would with a new artist um I know that sounds a bit sort of uh I don't know like like I think people need their hand held or something but that's not how I meant it but you know 
I don't know. I've had so many different experiences through the years working with different people that um, I try to be, on one hand, extremely um, just easy, and and but also at the same time, I try to just get right to the core of what it is I'm looking for, because I'm hoping that some people would just go, right, got it, and just go. And that happens occasionally. Usually it doesn't, but... In the event that it does happen, it's it's just sort of like, ah, okay, good. I was validated in that instance because they got it right away. Whereas other times, you know, you do need more uh, flowery language to get your point across. Yeah. Have you always been have, have you always been good at that in terms of um, telling collaborators what you want in a way that they'll respond to, or is that something you've learned over the years? No, I still don't know if I'm good at it. Um, but it's nice to hear in this one instance that it was, you know, um, that I got the seal of approval. But if you'd given me more time, I would have gone through all the collaborators. Yeah, just... I'm sure. <laughs> um, I mean, on this record, I, I think there's probably, without actually having counted, probably 15, 16 collaborators, individual collaborators. And I would say that there were 15 or 16 completely different experiences of, right. you know, the collaborative process. Um and going back all the way to something like the Uncle Science Fiction record that we did in the mid-90s, that was, again, a totally, you know, you had people that really, really needed help. Because back then, the idea of working, you know, or, or someone who's in the, comes from hip-hop like myself, working with quote-unquote rock artists, that was a new thing at that yeah. time. I mean, the gorillas hadn't been around. There, it was just not something that was done. And I feel like a lot of people really needed like to be like, okay, here's what we're going to do today. You know what I mean? Because rock and everything else was very separated still at that time. And, and that, that's really where I first learned how to do any of this. Yeah. At that point, were you expecting the process of Uncle to be like that? I didn't know what to expect because I had only ever worked with MCs. And the thing I started learning in those really early years was, and it sort of sounds funny, but like, <laughs> one thing I can't tell you how many sessions where it was like, okay, hang on, I, I got to smoke weed. And I'd be like, right, okay. And then I'd sit around for like half an hour. And if I wasn't careful, then when guys came back, it was like, oh man, I can't tonight. I smoke too much weed. Right. So literally it was like me having to kind of go, okay, try to <laughs> figure out a way to keep the session on track. And keep people from, you know, I don't know, being incapacitated to the point where they couldn't do the song. And so that's the only thing I had going into the Uncle record. And um, again, I mean, some people, when we did the Tom York track, again, this is going back like 22 some odd years. But I mean, he was extremely focused, laser focused but also very loose, like ahead of time, loose, like talking about it, what he wanted to do. But when it came time to do it, he did it in one take. And it was, you could tell, really cathartic for him to, to have done it. Um, not that we had done anything, but he put something into it that he needed to put into it for his own sake. And watching that was really moving and powerful. And then you had people that were literally, there was one artist that we worked with on that record that... Um, was just so scared that they couldn't, like, it, it, I think it, we booked three or four sessions, but they were literally just so scared of the moment. Right. Even though, I mean, it 
didn't seem like a moment yet for us because it was still just conceptual. But um, I think they had come from such sort of, I don't know, I felt like we came from a humble place and like a, a pretty small, um, you know, like nobody really knew who we were. It didn't seem like back then. And, and they were pretty small as well. And I, in the end, it was just kind of like, hey, we're all just making music. You know what I mean? Like forget about what may happen down the road. So everybody's different. I mean, at that point, you're obviously on the back of introducing. So could you see people's shifts, like perspectives shifting towards you in terms of, oh my God, it's DJ Shadow, groundbreaking, influential artist? I honestly, I still just feel like a lot of the rock people were just in rock world. And uh, I'm just trying to think of everybody on the record. I don't want to leave anybody out, but I mean, in the case of Tom York, he, I knew he was a fan of the record. We had met at a party for another magazine, and um, he approached me, actually, and said he was a big fan of the record. And I, that was really surprising and unusual because that just didn't happen in the States at that time. And, right. you know, the UK, sure, you know, um, people are generally more clued up about music and and willing to sort of look outside of their immediate sort of family group for inspiration but it still was unusual and then in terms of starting the new record how do you go about um well first of all did you know it was going to be such a sprawling epic record no not at the very beginning what happened was i started i'm i would say february 2018 working on the record and Somewhere around, I think, September or October of last year, it was suggested that uh, a double album would be amazing. And I think it was just kind of an offhand, like, wouldn't that be cool? But I often like these gauntlets to be thrown down. And I, there's something in my personality that just kind of goes, oh, I noticed you let that go pretty quickly. You probably think I can't do it. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's what's going through my head. And I want to show them. Yeah, exactly. I'll show them. And, and so that became a kind of an internal goal that I didn't really share with anybody, but I didn't really know if it was going to come off literally probably until May of this year, because there were so many tracks just kind of hanging in the balance, whether because uh, in one case I had put the, the demo in front of like six different artists and they just kind of went, I don't know what to do with this, you know? Right. And then, in another case, I just was convinced the vocal wasn't going to get turned in in time. And in another case, um, I just didn't think I was going to have time to finish one of the instrumentals. And um, But that, you know, kind of gauntlet being thrown at the double album and then me deciding, okay, for the first time in a long time, I'm going to let the instrumental music breathe on its own and the vocal tracks breathe on their own. That was, I think, what set the course for the record and for why it sounds the way it does. Yeah, because in terms of listening to the finished article, you don't have any hint of the chaos and uncertainty of making it. It sounds oh, really good. conceptually tight. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can say so or I can feel that way, but obviously you're never quite sure until other people start hearing it. So, What are you like when you're making a record? Um... I suppose if my family were here, they would probably say probably a bit moody. Um, and it can kind of go from day to day or moment to moment, depending on the work. If I had a good day, then I'm sort of, you know, everything's all right. And if I wasted eight hours on, 
you know, trying to write music and failing because I didn't have the proper bedrock education I probably should have had to be able to know intuitively what chord structure should go where and with what and, you know, would a, would a alto sax sound better than a baritone sax here? I mean, there's this sort of things I wish I knew. Um, then can, it can get quite frustrating and uh, it, it's hard for me to, to let go. I just, it's playing over and over in my head. I'm, it's like a riddle I'm trying to solve all the time. And that is quite refreshing to hear you say that you still sort of feel like you're learning on the job. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a, it may sound funny, but there's a quote um, that I read once that was actually applied to animation as in old school, you know, like cartoon animation. And it says something like, the life so short, comma, the craft so long to learn. And that's how I feel about what I do. I mean, there's so many things I wish I knew and may never know because there's just, it's so short. And then in terms of the second disc with the guest vocalists, um, how do you go about drawing that up? Do you just have a wish list or do you make a track and have the person in mind all along? It totally varies. Um, I do find that naming a track as I'm working on it helps me shape it and direct it. Um, and similarly, lots of times what I'll do is I'll just jot down artists that I could hear on the track, um, because I, it helps me to hear a voice in my head that's familiar. In some cases, I intend to actually pursue those people. And then in other cases, it's kind of a pipe dream or like that'll probably never happen. But, you know, you got to aim high, right? And you got to, and so I start on that basis and then as reality sets in or, circumstances start dictating, okay, great, we got this one, but this one isn't going to happen, so let's start thinking about who else it could be. And then lots of times I have other ideas. Sometimes I don't, you know. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know, guys, like either to my label or my management, like hit me with some names, like play me some music. Let's try to figure this out. I'd like to think that every idea is, you know, um, or every uh, collaborative suggestion is, uh, somehow whole and pure. But I also think sometimes it's a good idea to, to kind of cast a wider net and just go, all right, guy at my label that listens to music all day, you know, person at my management company that listens to music all day, me who listens to music all day together, who do we think? And then there's a song on there, Jojo's Words by a guy named Stro, or he, the lyrics are by a guy named Stro. And he was literally like the seventh person I sent the track to. And I wasn't familiar with this stuff. But it's one of those things where I thought that song wasn't going to make it. I was fed up with it. Couldn't get it. Couldn't get it right. Couldn't find anybody to, to kind of roll with the, the concept of it. And now it's one of my proudest songs on the record because of what he did with it. Right. And the fact that he embraced the challenge... And the lyrics from that song just go around and around in my head at all. Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it because it's that impactful. So sometimes you try to set a firm, like this is what I want, this is what I want. And other times I think you just got to take your hands off the wheel and go, all right, car, you know where you're going, like let's get there. And then tell me about the track Rosie, which I saw you described on your Twitter as a three-part voyage through my evolution as a beat maker. Yeah, I mean, it it just sort of dawned on me when thinking about um, 
the record and, and first being asked questions about it by my publicist and other people on my team. And that just kind of came out, you know, it was the very last song I did on the record. Um, and I just felt that there was one more thing I wanted to say, but I didn't know what it was. And through the process of working on the track, it just came rather quickly and it dawned on me that it is kind of a three-part thing. Like when I started working on the track, I got a bit bored rather quickly and I kind of went, well, I'm not really challenged. I'm not really doing anything I haven't done before. So I just kind of went right quick left turn and did something else with it. And then I wanted to do another completely oppositional turn and it dawned on me that kind of what I had actually done was started off in quote unquote classic mode and with, you know, not really challenging myself, not really pushing anything, but cool, fine. But I only really wanted to hear that for a minute or so. And then went into what I would say would be the most recent mode, which is kind of, okay, some cool sound design, some kind of 808 trappy beats and then went into a third mode which I most identify with this album which is um melody at 10 you know what I mean like writing a melody line that works with the samples and the beats that I have already going but then not stopping it you know one or two counter melodies but try just pushing it how many can I do can I do five can I do six can I do seven and can I have them not just be one notes please being played like with one finger on a keyboard, can they be two or three notes all played at the same time to just trying to push myself? Because like I said, um, I just wish I knew that stuff intuitively, but in the process of working on this record, I feel like I kind of broke through a little bit and was able to do some stuff that I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, even a few years ago. Do you look back much and take stock over your career? When you've been going now for 25 years? Uh, let's see, actually, um, 23. Well, even longer if you, I mean, I started DJing in 1984. So, I mean, um, I mean, obviously that was just on an amateur basis, but um, do I take stock? I don't know. Yeah, I guess so, a little bit. Um Occasionally, I'm asked to to be involved in projects that require me to take stock. So I think about six years ago, we did a kind of best of up till that point. I did that for Island Records. It was called Reconstructed, and it forced me to go back through the dats and the dat tapes and, and revisit these sessions. And on one hand, it just seems like, you know, two weeks ago, like that's how fresh it is in my head. But on another level, you, you start to do the math and you go, okay, so, fuck, that was a long time. You know what I mean? Like, that was a really long time ago. Like, to me, when I was a kid, like, 18 years old, listening to hip-hop, if there was anything over, like, two years old, it was ancient history to me. 
And then if you, even if you're talking about like the funk and soul stuff people were sampling, it was like 15 to 20 years old. Now we're talking about, you know, music that music. I made even long, it would be like me listening to doo-wop in 1990 <laughs> or something. I just, it's, it's kind of crazy when you put that kind of perspective on it. I'll try a couple and then if they're no good or, you know, if you didn't quite get what you wanted, I'll try another. Hey, this is DJ Shadow and you're checking out Q Presents The Making Of. What were you like as an 18-year-old? Um, I'd say it's just very different to how I am now. I mean, I used to be just bouncing off the walls energy. And um, I think like a lot of 18-year-old kids, especially at that time, probably obnoxious, probably, um, you know, I don't know. Um, I liked music that stood for something. And so hip-hop was my punk, you know what I mean? And, and groups like Public Enemy were my, you know, Bad Brains or Sex Pistols or, you know, it was, it was that important for me as a kid in the way that bands are important for people in different eras. Um, and I grew up in a small town in Northern California and, um, music seemed like a way out and it seemed like, uh, an oasis for me. When did that sort of crate digging addiction begin? About, um, 87, but I think the, the roots of it were planted as soon as I first heard scratching or sampling. I mean, I really wanted to know what these sounds were. Going even further back to 1982, when um, one of the first rap records I ever heard was The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. And that was the template for everything that I've done since, really. I mean, it's DJing, it's finding things, you know, children's records and, um, you know, rock records and, and putting all these things out of context and having the basis of it be funk and, and rap and hip-hop, that's kind of always, that's what set me on my path. I remember when I found around, in the late 90s, I found one of the spoken word elements from the Adventures of Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels of Steel that had always perplexed me. And it just seemed like such a random thing for him to put in. And it's, it's this piece, a little spoken word piece, you can hear crickets, and it's this kid going... Um, why don't you tell me a story? And this voice goes, well, I was a teenager in like Amherst, North Dakota or something. And I'd hear all this stuff as a 10 year old and just going, what is, this is so strange. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's so odd. And then when I found it, you know, cause there was no internet, there was no Bible for what this stuff yeah. was. You had to go out and find it. There were you, who could you ask? You couldn't ask anybody. So that's what really got me going. And, and also when I started to hear the same sound scratched on different hip-hop records, and I started to just think about it and go, well, how does this de these two DJs know what these sounds are and I don't know? Why is this common knowledge among a certain group of people? And I really didn't understand what breakbeats were yet, but they were both scratching on the stabs of two classic breakbeats that had been played as part of hip-hop culture going back to the mid-70s. So, of course, a kid in North, Northern California, I don't know this history. And that's what led me to discovering breaks and trying to understand something that there were no books, no magazine articles, and no movies or TV shows about, and certainly no blogs or 
podcasts or, or, or you know, YouTube yeah. tutorials. You had to learn it all on your own. What was it about it that put you on that sort of mission to unpick it? For me, growing up in Northern California, it was classic rock hell. And I was saying to somebody recently that, you know, in 1981 or whatever, they did their top 100 songs, the rock station, and the number one song was Stairway to Heaven. And it had been the number one song for like nine or ten years. And I just kind of went, there's something inherently wrong in this. You know what I mean? Even as a ten-year-old, because I was really media savvy and media um, suspicious. And um, to me, it just was bullshit. You know what I mean? I love all that music now. I like kind of was able to rediscover hip or rock through hip-hop on my own terms and kind of at my own pace. But the idea that, you know, anybody telling you basically that the music of the past can never be supplanted and can never be bested. I mean, you know, my mom was a huge Beatles fan. She saw them. She went to see them at the airport like in 1964 or some ridiculously early time. And, you know, so I grew up hearing that that was, the be- that was as good as it gets. You know what I mean? And I can now kind of go, okay, maybe from a songwriting perspective, a production perspective, it's, yeah, it's pretty much as good as it gets. But all through my teenage years and my 20s, I just didn't want to know about any of that stuff. I mean, that does make sense if you're explaining that you rejected being force-fed the classics and then by the early 90s as you're going towards making your debut, it's almost like a year zero for you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's how vital hip-hop was at that time. I mean, anything, like I said earlier, anything over like six months old was, forget it. I mean, it it had already moved, like the needle had moved way beyond that point. And um, it, it's, it's really exciting when you're a part of a, a culture or a movement where not only are you a thousand percent confident that you're in the right place at the right time, but you're just on a daily basis, you're being, you know, floored by the innovations and the the ideas of your peers. I mean, I didn't even consider myself a peer at that time, but as a fan and as somebody who hoped someday to contribute, it was just, uh, it was just very exciting. I mean, in that run-up of your early releases uh, leading up to introducing and meeting James Avell and Moax, did you yourself, did you feel like you were doing something inventive? Could you feel it as the artist? Um, I all the only thing I knew was that I was doing something personal, and I had always felt that you know it's fine to pick up a guitar and do you know smoke on the water or a Hendrix riff or something to learn and to kind of woodshed and get your hand uh, your handle on the instrument in the same way that I used to do scratches that I heard on other people's records to try to do them and then do them faster. But at a certain point, I think if you're going to contribute, and this is what I always felt then you have to allow your your own personality. It's not enough to just imitate. You have to, um, you know, be willing to put yourself out there, even as a suburban, you know, whatever, however old I was, you know, being from California. Um, I just felt that I had been, I don't know, attentive student of the music and the culture, and I just wanted to give back. And I felt that, okay, I don't want to imitate. I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. So hopefully my voice will resonate with someone else and they'll pick up, you know, the the baton and take it a little bit further. 
hopefully that's that's all I tried to do and that's all I wanted to do back then was just okay provide an alternative or provide um just something different how did you feel when all the positive reviews started coming in for introducing well actually the first review I read on the album was extremely negative <laughs> and James and I were together and we were in um I think we were at um rough trade and he kind of went oh it's in and he read it and he kind of goes and shook his head and I knew what that meant and I go what did it say he goes you don't want to know oh, and then at, once he said that I couldn't resist and I, and clearly in retrospect the writer had an axe to grind and was making all sorts of dodgy comparisons between Moax and this label or that label and right so I kind of understood that even then I just kind of went well whatever I said to James, I said something like, that's nothing new, is it, you know? And because uh, we had had our share of knocks even in the early days, you know. I know it all seems in retrospect like everyone was in lockstep and it was, you know, a thousand percent positive. But to be totally honest, everything I read after that was positive. It was just that very first one that wasn't. And you'd lived over here for a few years, is that right? Cumulatively, yeah. I mean, I I think the longest I ever actually stayed was like four months at a time. But yeah, circa 94, 95, 96, 97, I was probably out here, you know, five, six months out of the year. And then we spoke about Uncle earlier. Um, what did What sort of mindset and headspace were you in after the Uncle record in terms of what you wanted to do going forward? After the Uncle record, I... Hmm, that's tough. I mean, I, I remember it being a not-so-happy time because I had, on sort of one hand, felt a bit used. On another hand, felt a bit homeless. You know what I mean? I, I felt like that same structure and, and safety net that Moax and, uh, you know, the company that ran Mo or, you know, A&M UK had sort of put out there for us, it was, it, it was starting to fray and drop away. And I didn't really know what was going to happen. And meanwhile, back home, I felt like a lot of my crew that I came up with doing hip hip hop stuff with were kind of looking at me a bit like, oh, you know, pop star now, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I just was like, this is kind of shitty. This is like a weird feeling, you know. And I wasn't really making a ton of music initially. And then the things that I was doing were seemed kind of overlong and difficult to deal with. Um, I did music for a documentary called Dark Days, and that was a, an amazing movie. But the process of trying to, you know, at that era, of trying to sync like a Betamax film tape with your Pro Tools on a, at home, like I was just sitting there going, this... There's nothing I hate more than dealing with technology all day long. Like, because to me, it's just not creative. Yeah. And it just seemed like every project I took on at that time, I don't know, it, it felt like technology was always getting in the way. So it really wasn't until I started working on... Actually, I'll tell you what broke me out of it. Just kind of popped into my head. Because I was doing a lot of little side things just for fun and for to try to kind of get my groove back. And it was... Um, the brain freeze mix that I did with Cut Chemist. That's what, that was fun. And that kind of, I think, took me back to the essence again of, you know, DJing and finding weird things to, and, and kind of putting your sense of humor into it as well. And we just had fun with it. And that, when that kind of took off and 
kind of became a phenomenon. Um, I think that's what allowed me to like, okay, I'm, I think I'm ready to work on my own album again. So by the time you came to do the private press, did you feel reinvigorated? I felt reinvigorated. I, I, I still felt a bit um, shell-shocked or, or sort of what just happened with the whole uncle thing, especially because we thought it was we thought it was going to change things. You know what I mean? Like we really thought undeniably like there's going to be before and after that's how, that's how confident we felt in the record. And, um, I think it, it achieved a bit of that here in this country, but in the States, it was just completely mishandled as a, as a project, you know what I mean? From a record company standpoint. And, you know, so I think what I was experiencing for the first time in my career was a bit of a stiff wind, you know what I mean? And a bit of, um, you know, just a bit of like maybe not everything you do is going to be, uh, you know, the best thing ever. Maybe, you know, some people are going to get what you do and some people don't. And it sounds silly to say that because of course that's going to be the case. And believe me, I fully understand that now but I think I got a bit lucky with the first album and I think even though I've never really felt egotistical about what I do I think there was a part of me that maybe felt a bit entitled to somehow you know what I mean yeah Um, do you think do you think the problem with uncle was it it might just been ahead of its time I think that it's it's possible only in the sense that again it, it was quite a novel concept at that time um, and it's a concept that's been done successfully many times since. Um, but I honestly also think that inherently we were one song short. Um, I felt that way on the day the record was mastered, like, oh shit, we're one song short. Right. And also, you know, there were certain little behind the scenes things that I think made it pretty clear that it was you know while we aimed very very high we were going to fall short of that goal what lessons did you learn in those last years of the 90s that you took forward into your future work i i think one of them is just i didn't want to do anything that wasn't going to be enjoyable or at least um a challenge but you know i i, I think a lot of it had to do with autonomy I didn't want to be a puppet again. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be um, doing things that I didn't agree with because someone else was in charge. Um, You know, making musical decisions, in other words. Um, So, I mean, I know that that makes it sound as though I have an axe to grind with James. I honestly don't. Um, And, you know, I love the guy and everything he's done for me. But I think if we're both honest, we would have both done, done... done things differently this time around if we did it again so i think i just learned a lot of that you know autonomy and and control i think ultimately is what every artist wants and um i just didn't want to have to compromise going forward with what i thought was the right decision for the project when you make such a big debut album it can cast a shadow over your future work so obviously the private press was the follow-up to introducing in terms of when you make such a big debut album, at which point in your career did you feel like you weren't in competition with your former self? Well, in all honesty, I've never felt that. And I know people kind of go, come on, deep down, don't you really? And the answer is no. 
But I also totally understand that narrative as it pertains to other people. In other words, you know, I remember where I was the first time I heard, you know, X group. There's only going to be one chance to have that feeling. No matter how many other records they make, there's that moment that you attach to that band or that group or that song. And there's a part of you that wants that to continue, right? And as a music lover, I get that. And I also get why that's not my my work. You know what I mean? In other words, what I hoped over time to kind of articulate to people was that's totally fine if you feel that way. And it's also totally fine that I don't. You know what I mean? That I don't feel so, it, it like burdened by introducing or, or other things I've done. Um, because I've just never felt that way. And, but to answer your question maybe more succinctly, probably not until the last record and the success of Nobody Speak, because that's now my most successful thing I've ever done by leaps and bounds. So by any yardstick you want to use, I can now say, well, actually my biggest success has been in the last few years as opposed to, you know, 23 years ago or whatever. What's your favorite DJ Shadow record? Album? Um, that's tough because obviously you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say the new one. And of course I would, right? And then I'm going to edit that bit out. (laughs) Um, But I do feel like I could pretty honestly rank all my albums, like in terms of, and, and I would only rank them in terms of the degree to which I was successful with what I tried to do. That's the only real, you know, I, I can go song for song and say, did this song achieve what I wanted it to achieve? And it's pretty answer. It's pretty easy, I think, for me to answer yes or no, or, you know, give it an 80%, a B or an A or whatever. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go then. Oh, no, really? Shit. You've massively set yourself up there. And he's even got them on a piece of paper. <laughs> Let's go from the top. Introducing. Right. Okay. I'm going to do this under the with the caveat that it could change at any time. Okay. I don't want to be I don't want people asking me now about this moment 10 years from now. Okay. So, for me number 1 would be the new album Our Pathetic Age. Number 2 would be Introducing. Number three would be The Mountain Will Fall. Number four would be The Private Press. Number five would be The Outsider. And the last would be The Less You Know, The Better. And you've that's just, pure honesty. You've just someone who loves that record's heart, haven't you? No, I, I, when, I say, when I say like best to worst, it's a bit misleading because I don't think any of the albums are failures. But if I'm totally honest with myself... You know, and I have various personal reasons for putting them in that order. But for me, it has more to do with the sound in my head, the objectives I'm trying to achieve, and whether I was successful or not. So there you go. What's it been like for you adapting to um, what you do and how you make music in terms of streaming? Does it take the fun out of it? You know, in all honesty... um, Streaming is just something that I feel like is happening and I really don't pay that much attention to it. And because I think 
fortunately, because I don't really have to concern myself with algorithms and am I into the hook fast enough and is it blue enough or green enough, whatever, you know what I mean? Whatever terms work for people. I don't make music that way. So, and I don't get paid the kind of money to make music where I have to worry about stuff like that. What about in the way that you seek out music in terms of a, a record shop lover? Sure. Um, well, if you're asking, is it a way, do I use it to discover music? Are you going to be asking me that? Yeah, some. I don't but, know why I just nodded there rather than go, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, people can hear your nod, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I I personally really enjoyed using SoundCloud for that purpose. Um, it's changed a bit now. Everything, this is what happens with tech is a maverick comes out and goes, fuck the rules, fuck the system. And then, of course, they get bought and then they have to go, sorry, we're just going to go through a little change. And, you know, they have to adapt. And so there's this sort of honeymoon phase, I feel like, with any new thing where, you know, it's kind of vital and exciting and there's people feeding into it. And then it sort of, I don't know, makes its gradual, inevitable uh, pull to the center or in the, mi- in the middle again. But yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I was doing DJ gigs again, uh, between about 2012 and 14 or 15. And, um, uh, it was great, you know, discovering music in that way and, and just, yeah, inter- networking with all these young producers and stuff. It was really important for me to have done that. Is there anything on your to-do list that you haven't got around to yet? Musically. Musically. Um, yeah. Unless you want to tell me about, you want to go bass jumping or something. No, I I was about to sort of have fun with it. And then I thought, you know what, I'm not good at having fun with stuff in that way. So I better just play it straight. I don't know. I I don't really spend a lot of time kind of sitting around and um, thinking, you know, I wish I could produce this artist or this band or I just kind of have always had... I, I like to try to allow enough room for cool, th- interesting things to happen by chance. And a lot of interesting things have happened in that way through the years and ended up taking on shapes that I couldn't have possibly predicted. And if I had planned my life out, you know, to that degree, then possibly I wouldn't have been able to do those things. Do you remember the magazine Smash Hits, UK pop magazine? Yeah. They used to have a thing called the Biscuit Tin. It had random questions in it. Oh, cool. Do you remember this Soul is... Underground? Yes. It was a magazine I used to like. People, a lot of people probably don't realize, I, I used to read Melody Maker and Enemy in the 80s because it was like the UK press was covering hip-hop and the American press wasn't. Yeah. So, I yeah, I used to... Get Where was the, um, the negative introducing review? I'll tell you and only you because nobody's... <laughs> no, nobody will... Um, wire, The Wire. Right. When you're in airports, do you like put it to the back of the shelf and stuff? Other, put Melody Maker in front? Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, hey, it's it honestly, yeah, it's, fine. It, it's fine. Yeah, you, you you haven't mentioned it today. You obviously you've put that to. Uh, I I didn't have it at the <laughs> forefront of my mind. I wasn't able to reel it off. The okay, top. so we've got some random questions in here. You can see it's not re- an official biscuit tin. Pick one out. Right. Shall I read it? Yeah. What's the strangest gift you've ever received? Oh, okay. So these aren't actually questions that other... These are like questions you've prepared. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
and and original biscuit tin. They're from the yeah. Oh inspired right, inspired wow. by the original Smash Hits biscuit tin. Oh, plus, cool, plus cool. a new a few modern additions. Right, the stranger's gift, as in like fan gift. Could be, or it could just be any gift. Wow. Um, okay. No, it would be a fan gift. Well, I am occasionally given things by fans after gigs. I've been given a plasticine uh, figurine of myself. <laughs> and I look like one of the Wallace and Gromit characters. Um, or actually Sean the Sheep, more like. And what, what, what era of DJ Shadow did they go for? Um, this was probably about 15 years ago. I, I want to say around the private press kind of time. And uh, it's cool. Actually, for the person who made that for me, I still have it. And I have it prominently displayed, I might add. So it may not be the strangest gift, but um, it was cool and unusual. I appreciate stuff like that. Cool. If you had to invite four people, living or dead, to your dream dinner party, who would you choose? Um, that's a bit probably easy for me. It would be George Clinton from Funkadelic, Gil Scott Heron, James Brown, and for good measure, I want to pick, uh, I would say, Miles Davis. Wow. Simply because how could you not learn something creatively from that assemblage of people here we go last last dip into the biscuit tin have you ever been mistaken for someone else um not in a sort of like are you a famous per well <laughs> so there was a running joke for a while uh i guess when i was a certain age probably from like 98 to 2002 uh, people thought it was funny to compare me to um, now I'm going to blank on his name actor's son was in The Lost Boys Sutherland I'm getting Kiefer closer Sutherland. Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland yeah. do you see it? There's, I do I've been sitting here with your profile <laughs> yes see, so, yeah. so I don't know at a certain point when he was probably a bit more famous and around and I was probably at the peak of you know whatever kind of household rec recognition I might have had. Um, yeah, there used to be a sort of running <laughs> thing. And friends of mine thought it was hilarious, I might add. Well, what did you think? Um, well, I guess it's not the worst thing in the world, you know. And then uh, I did see a, a, a gif on the internet or a meme or something that was me morphing into the Bad Terminator from Terminator 2, the cop. Right, yeah. You know, the one that was able to, to turn into metal and, yeah. and all that. So the actor who plays that guy. I don't know why. We both sort of have big ears, I suppose. Yeah, he looks more evil than you. Yeah. Oh. So those are the only two comparisons or, or mistaken identity things I can think of. Josh, thank you so much for coming in. Cool, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um... And thank you to you, the listener, for listening uh, and to producer Sue. Uh, this has been another episode of Q Presents The Making Of. Um, please remember to rate and subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Planet Radio, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You've been listening to Q Presents The Making Of with DJ Shadow. Well done. Thanks, man. Did you guys know... So is this Q Magazine? Yeah. Yes. So I... 
presented Depeche Mode with a Lifetime Award at the 2002 Q Awards. Did you? Yeah. That's cool. I love Depeche Mode. Hi, I'm DJ Shadow, and you've been checking out Q Presents The Making Of.